Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. As we often discuss here at Sakara, all of our inputs, what we eat, listen to, think, surround ourselves with, impact not just our mental health and how we feel, but our physiology. Our hormones play a crucial role in our well-being as they dictate everything from our appetite, metabolism, sleep patterns, mood, reproduction, and so much more. Today, we're so thrilled to have our dear friend and Sakara Science and Advisory Council member, Dr. Aviva Ram, back on the podcast. In our past episode with her, we discussed fertility and motherhood. Today, we've invited her back onto the podcast, this time to discuss her newest book, hormone intelligence and break down what hormones are and what they indicate about our health and what we can do to keep them healthy. I'm sure many of you Sakarlites are very familiar with her work, but for those of you who are new here, aside from being an author, Aviva is also a midwife, an herbalist, and a Yale-trained medical doctor. We're so excited to share this conversation with you. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Aviva Ram. Well, welcome to the Sakara Life podcast, part welcome two. Back. Thank you. <laughs> so You're exciting. The, the first guest we've had more than once now. Ooh, yeah, set the records. Love it. Love it. Well, you know, we usually start out with what is your mission? But since this is your second time here with us, we thought we'd ask, you know, what is your mission with this book in particular and the topic of hormone and hormone health? You know, I think my biggest mission on some levels is just to help us all as women really deeply at a cellular level integrate knowing that we're not broken. That if you do have hormone challenges or gynecologic challenges, whatever they are, they're not your fault. They're not something you've done wrong with your diet. They're not something you've done wrong with your thinking. They're not something you've done on purpose to your own gut, that we are kind of at the epicenter as women of a lot of forces that are affecting us and that our hormones are these very sensitive messaging signals that are disrupted by even tiny little kind of influences that happen. And we're getting a lot of big ones. So as a starting place, I feel like I want this book to be an exhale for women and saying, okay, I'm not broken. I didn't do anything wrong. And now from that place, what can I do to start to step up and take control of the things that I want to take control of in my life? And how do I address those things that my hormones might be getting in the way of me living my best life of. And again, it's not the hormones that are the problem. It's the environmental triggers, et cetera, that are setting our hormones off. It's such an important conversation because especially in this world of wellness and given, you know, we're here on the Sakara podcast, I'm sure all these listeners feel similarly that it's almost like if you do all the things to take care of yourself and then something's still wrong, it's not only defeating, but I think there's a lot of shame in this wellness world and bubble about if something ends up going wrong, even though you're doing, and I'm using air quotes here, all the right things. So I love that you're talking about this because it's really important that even you can believe that you have a lot of agency over your health. And also that means that things can still go wrong that might not be your fault and probably aren't your fault. Yeah. There's this expression that insanity is a sane response to an insane world. And I feel like hormone Mm. imbalances are sort of the feminine parallel of that. Like what's going on in our body is actually a natural call out or a natural cry out to a lot of factors that aren't natural. And, you know, I really want to say, I just so appreciate 
both of you, because as we've talked about in other settings together, the fact that you've been transparent about your own fertility or pregnancy struggles really starts to normalize the conversation because some of these things that are affecting us, I think about polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis, particularly, even though you, I love the word agency, Danielle, that you just use, I think it's such a powerful word, even though we can have agency to learn how to manage these things and even reverse and heal them, we now know that some of these things got, the tracks got laid down before we were even born. Like it was in our mom's wombs because our moms were exposed to things. And then we hit puberty and, you know, we kind of go down this up and down this roller coaster of hormones through our cycles, like the natural roller coaster, because there are like peaks and valleys, but we might go down a very different track than our sort of innate biological blueprint because of things that happened before we even had any agency over our body. And so starting from a place of self-compassion and self-forgiveness to me is so important. And realizing that, you know, just kind of like being in the pursuit of being fixed isn't necessarily the healthiest life place to be in either. Like if we're eating a healthy diet because we want to get fixed or we're sleeping better because we want to get fixed, as opposed to doing those things because they're nurturing and healthy and good for us and they feel good, I think that's a healthier road to get to the results that we want instead of being so kind of, I don't know, like head down in pursuit of something. Yeah, fixated. It's like exactly. fix, fixated on, you can be fixated but on, on the right things. It's like doing the healthy things. The point of doing them isn't doing them. The point of doing them is to feel good at the end of the day. Yeah. Or being stressed about being healthy, right? right. Like getting stressed about what I'm eating or getting stressed about whether I'm sleeping enough doesn't actually create a healing environment for myself. Right. Right. Yeah. I do think it's important to be compassionate with yourself and to know that there are certain things that are just outside of your hands. But then I also want to talk about that there are certain things that you can do. I know a number of people who have come to us or even friends in our circle who have come to us with things like PCOS, feeling like there is no answer. A doctor tells them, look, you're never going to have kids. And I'm, I'm sorry, this is just the way that it is. And then they take the steps to change their diet, change their lifestyle and have amazing outcomes. So I also want to make sure that we are talking about what can be done. And absolutely, there is hope. Absolutely. I feel like the self-compassion is the starting place that allows us to be free to get curious about what we can do. And, you know, another part of the mission isn't just individual. It's actually really global because we do have to change the influences, right? We do have to really be mindful of environmental factors that we have an influence over, but it's also about changing the medical model. I mean, I really hope that this book gets into the hands of so many women who are now going to their doctors and saying, uh-uh, I'm not just accepting no for an answer. or I'm, I'm not just accepting the pill for an answer. I'm not just accepting the hysterectomy for an answer. That may be one of the answers, but I deserve more than that. And also I deserve to be heard and believed and listened to. But there are so many things. I mean, Whitney, you've shared with your fertility journey, the doubts that were put upon you and then just naturally becoming pregnant. I just spoke with a woman yesterday in one of my online programs, and she was sharing the kind of testimony that she had been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, thyroid problems in her early 30s and was told, basically, you should just give up and plan to do fertility treatment or just assume you're not going to get pregnant naturally. And she said that really affected her self-concept. And then she wasn't even ready to have a baby yet. She wasn't in the the relationship of the lifetime that she wanted to be in. And then when she was 41, she got pregnant naturally and had a beautiful pregnancy experience, but it took her unpacking some of that baggage. But what are the things that we can do? So we do know that food has such a huge impact on our hormones on so many levels. So for one, as I know you guys are really all about too, making sure that we're getting really good, healthy fats in our diet. Hormones are actually made out of cholesterol. They're made out of fat. So we can't produce hormones, especially estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, if we're not getting good fat, good quality fat in our diet. And it's not just any fat. It has to be healthful fats. So whether it's avocado or olive oil or from coconut or ghee, those are all great sources. But the opposite is also true that trans fats, 
where unhealthy fats can be a major contributor to inflammation that gets in the way of hormone health and hormone balance. So that's just one example. Another example is getting lots of leafy greens in the diet. Because of all these environmental endocrine disruptors, as they're called, a lot of them, which unnaturally bump up our estrogen, a lot of women are struggling with symptoms of estrogen excess, including things like really heavy periods or monthly really uncomfortable breasts or significant mood swings or water retention and bloating premenstrually, but also some longer term down the road things like uterine fibroids are directly caused by excess estrogen. And even some cancers like endometrial cancer and breast cancer can be due to these excess estrogens. So not to sound like a Debbie Downer, but these are real things that we need to be aware of. And then those leafy greens, you know, you think, what leafy greens? I mean, what could they really be doing? But actually they have a major impact on two things. One, our body's ability to detoxify through our liver, these environmental toxins, because they contain a whole host of nutrients, but also these things called phytochemicals, specific chemicals in plants that help us support detoxification. But the other thing is they have a lot of fiber. And most of us are getting like about 10% of the fiber in our diets that our ancestors got. And most of us are getting about half the amount of fiber that's even recommended to prevent like colon cancer. It's pretty staggering. Hopefully the saccharolites are getting a lot more fiber. I mean, we can assume, but that's why these, you know, this food as medicine is so valuable for hormone health. And there are just other examples like getting seeds in our diet. And you don't have to seed cycle to get, if you like seed cycling, that's great, but you don't have to seed cycle to get healthful seeds in your diet. Just chia seeds and you know delicious chia pudding or flax seeds sprinkled into your Saqqara meal or onto the meal that you make yourself, sesame seeds, pumpkin seeds. I'm a nut for tahini. I should seriously, y'all, I should seriously <laughs> buy, I should buy stock in a tahini company. I love that stuff so mm-hmm. much. But those are a great setup for healthy ovaries, healthy progesterone. So, so much we can do. One thing that we also do in our Sakara philosophy is add in sulfur-rich vegetables. Absolutely. So things like cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, all of those cruciferous vegetables, kale, onions, garlic, the allium family, which contain sulfur and, and sulfur compounds in them that support the liver in phase two detox process. So helping the exactly. body... I mean, you can explain this better than I can, but helping the body to metabolize some of those hormones so that we don't become too estrogen dominant. Is that something that you also talk about? Yeah, I do. I mean, you explained it exactly perfectly. In our liver, which is our next to our skin, it's our second biggest organ of detoxification. Interestingly, our skin is our biggest organ of detoxification, but our liver does this amazing job constantly every day, you know, day in and day out, every second of the day, packaging the breakdown products of our own hormones, the breakdown products of the environmental chemicals that we're getting exposed to that act like hormones, those endocrine disruptors, but also just other things like our nutrients, if you're taking pharmaceuticals. And we have these two phases in our liver. One is where we break these compounds down And interestingly, in the process of breaking them down for a short little while, they can become more toxic. And then all these compounds that you're talking about, Whitney, the compounds that come from those cruciferous vegetables, which is, I think you mentioned kale, Brussels sprouts, cabbages, collard greens, broccoli, Napa cabbage, bok choy, they're all in that family. It can be red cabbage, green cabbage, super healthful because they actually also contain sulfur compounds and other compounds that in phase two, what they're doing is they're taking those temporary compounds that were formed and now packaging and shipping them off to be excreted when you pee or poop. And so that's why also the fiber in them becomes so important because then we're eliminating and that's actually phase three. And also the garlic, the onions, all those alliums that you mentioned, super, super important because they have compounds that support that packaging and eliminating. And it's also important, I think we touched briefly on fertility and getting pregnant, but also for perimenopause and menopause. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, it's been funny because 
I've gotten more emails and social media posts, comments about menopause than anything else with the book. I think it says a lot of where women are in their life stages. And I'm hearing this from a lot of other folks. And I know you guys have a growing population of women who are looking for support in that age range too. And there are a couple of important things. So how we treat our bodies and how our hormones are rolling out in our 20s, 30s, and 40s actually sets the tone for how we experience menopause, how easy or how hard it is. And then how we experience menopause is kind of a reflection or almost like a window into how we might experience our more golden years or wisdom years, or maybe silver years. That's the appropriate, right? Like silver haired Mm -hmm. years. So we know that, for example, women who struggle with high estrogen throughout their 20s, 30s, 40s, may have actually a harder time with hot flashes, irregular bleeding during menopause, but also have a higher risk for longer term problems as well. And how do you know if you're high in estrogen? Yeah. So a lot of what we can tell with hormones, we can tell through symptoms. So if you're having pretty significant heavy periods, if you have more frequent or short periods, if you have a lot of heavy cramping because your periods are heavy, if you have cyclic breast tenderness, if you have extreme hormonal mood swings. So if around ovulation, you have a really big drop in your mood or you experience migraines or headaches mid-cycle, or again, or alternatively, it may be that you experience really intense mood swings, energy drops, migraines, premenstrually, that can all be an indication that you have high estrogen. And then of course, in my new book, I have a ton of checklists that help you figure out where you are in your kind of your own hormonal profile. Testing can be helpful, but it's not critical unless you suspect a significant medical problem. Otherwise, you can really go based on how you're feeling and how your symptoms are improving. But diet is just as important in perimenopause and menopause because it's really what's setting us up for that next 30, 40 years that a lot of women experience. The average age of menopause internationally is 51 years old. And so if we're living into our hopefully 80s, 90s, maybe even hundreds, and we want to stay cognitively sharp, have a healthy heart, have healthy cholesterol, have healthy moods, good sleep, good sex, like all of that, we want to take care of our hormones. And food is such an important way of doing that. And, you know, our dietary needs, I think they shift a lot over our life cycles. Like my dietary needs in my 20s were different than when I was pregnant were then different in my you know my late 30s and 40s and now I'm turning 55 in a few weeks and I'm finding my dietary needs are shifting again like what my body wants or doesn't need as much of or wants more of so I'm leaning even though in my 20s my teens and my 20s I was a vegan and vegetarian even through several of my pregnancies then I found when I was in my medical training for example and doing so much cognitive work I really wanted a lot more protein. Now I'm finding that I want less grain than I used to want, but a lot more fish and a lot less, like I'm barely eating any red meat or any poultry. I mostly just want fish and a lot of vegetables and a little bit of grain and some fruit and a lot of good quality fats. So I think it's so important that we also not get stuck on one idea of how we eat or how we live in any one life cycle, but be open to those shifts by listening into our bodies and trusting those messages in our bodies. Yeah. One of our pillars of nutrition is actually body intelligence. It's like the whole goal, we talked about this earlier, the whole goal is not to check things off a checklist, but to get to a place where you don't even have to think about it. And it's this really beautiful kind of synergistic dance between you and all your choices in life. And they don't feel like you know, life or death choices are choices that are difficult to make, but there's this kind of easy breezy attitude toward it all. But I wanted to zoom out just for a second because Mm -hmm. hormones are just so nuanced and we could probably sit here and talk about estrogen dominance for an hour because there's so much to talk about. I have two questions. One, could you kind of lay the groundwork for what are hormones exactly? What do they do? What are they in charge of? And then my second question is tied to it, but I guess a a little different in that I have this experience, especially recently 
you know, we work with a lot of functional medicine doctors. We're deeply in the world. You know, I'm getting my master's in functional medicine. I often hear this frame of reference of like, it's the, it's a symptom. It's not a cause. And I hear that a lot in especially functional medicine. It's constantly trying to get to the root cause of things. Do you think that hormones are getting at the root cause? I guess I find I always hear things are symptoms and never like the root cause. Like we're always looking for the root cause. Hormones, especially because they're so nuanced and so dependent on the inputs that we get from food and environment. Do you think that our hormone health is really getting at some, some kind of root cause for health or disease? Yeah. At its basic definition, a hormone is a chemical messenger. And That is to me so powerful because it ties exactly into the question you're asking. But just to go a little more into what that means, a chemical messenger. So hormones are a variety of different chemicals. They have different structures with some similarities, like there are actually three different types of estrogen and many of them are built off of each other. So the core foundation is this cholesterol molecule and then each different hormone kind of has its own shape and fits into almost like a lock and key in the body into its own receptor. So hormones are produced in glands. So think about the adrenal glands that produces cortisol. Think about the thyroid that produces thyroid hormones, the ovaries, we get estrogen and progesterone. And then we have glands in our brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary that are kind of the queens of the whole mastermind of everything. They're producing these hormones that trigger the rest of the glands to either kick into production or cut back on production depending on hormone levels in our body. So the hormones are produced in a gland, they're secreted, they're squeezed out into the bloodstream or pumped out into the bloodstream, and then they travel to wherever they're going to deliver that message. And we have targets all over our body, our brains, our bones, our pancreas, our liver, our ovaries, our uterus. I mean, there's really no part of the body that isn't in some way controlled by hormones. And it it controls metabolism, heart rate. I mean, depending on what the hormone is, it's basically everything. And I think about hormones and I talk about this in the book, kind of remember that game telephone when we were kids and like you would start out with a message and then whisper it to the next person and whisper it to the next person. And most of the time we just got really silly with it. So we knew we were garbling the message. So by the end of the day, it came out as a completely different message. But in the best world, that message would get pumped out from the gland and get delivered and then convey the message that it's supposed to convey. But what happens is so many different factors, and it can be stress, it can be stuff going on in your microbiome, it can be these endocrine disruptors that are mimicking our hormones. And at the end of the line where the message is supposed to get delivered, it gets delivered as a different message, it gets garbled. And so we're not getting the function that we're supposed to be getting. So the way I think about hormones in terms of a root cause, it's really interesting. In 2005, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists said that women's menstrual cycles and our gynecologic function are a vital sign, just like our blood pressure, our heart rate, our respiratory rate, our temperature, and pain, that we can actually look to what's going on in our menstrual cycles and our gynecologic health as an indication that something else is going on under the surface that we should look at. And what they were saying is that, let's say you have period pain every month, that that's not actually normal or something we should just accept, but it could be a sign of endometriosis or chronic pelvic pain or something else or a hormone imbalance. So there's already this important need to look under the hood and say, okay, if we're having these symptoms, what do those symptoms mean? And how do those symptoms reflect a hormone imbalance? But then I do believe we need to go one step further and say, what are the things that we can do to bring those hormones back in alignment with this sort of biological ancient blueprint that we all have that's now gotten disturbed by these environmental things. Sometimes just by, and you guys have seen this in your own lives, I've seen this in my own life, and we've also seen it with 
our communities and the members of our community where we hear these amazing stories of someone who was really struggling with something and then they changed their diet and it turned around or they started sleeping better and meditating and something really shifted. Or, I mean, there are studies where we look at, for example, teenage girls who have high levels of basically like chemicals that come from plastics and come from body products, these phthalates. And when they take these out of these girls' environment, like stop drinking out of literally plastic water bottles and stop using sunscreen that has these phthalates in it, within a week, you can see those blood levels drop. And we know that those blood levels are contributing to hormone problems. So I do believe it's really important whenever we can to go deeper to these root causes that we're talking about. And it might not be that you ever know the answer. You might not know, oh, I changed my diet. So it was my diet causing my period pain or my heavy bleeding or my fertility challenge. Or you might not know whether it was adding in that probiotic that helped your gut. But we do know that those core things that we can have agency over, as you said earlier, Danielle, can really make a difference. And it also doesn't mean that you might not go for the fertility treatment or take the pill or get that surgical treatment for your endometriosis. But we know that these things are really important for our long-term health. And that was the other thing about this idea of our periods being a vital sign or our gynecologic health being a vital sign. It's not just about what's going on now. It's about what I was talking about earlier, that those things then become the window into like a domino of other things that might happen later. So, you know, you can go a little crazy looking under the hood. Like you can go a little crazy, like I've got to find the root cause. I've got to find the root cause. And sometimes we can, sometimes we can't, but I still think making these changes, you're addressing all the root causes. And actually that's the core six chapters of the plan in my book is how do we address the root causes? And then there's a whole part of the book, which is how do we also deal with the symptoms at the same time? Because it might be the symptoms that are making you feel awful, right? And you might not want to spend six months getting onto the root cause while you're still having these migraines every month. Right. I also heard you talk a couple of times about the gut and hormones. So can you speak to the relationship between your gut and your hormone health? Yeah. So Whitney, you were talking about detoxification earlier and those liver phases. The gut also has a remarkable capacity for detoxification. And it's not just what we poop out that we've broken down and are eliminating, but our microbiome actually has an entire department called the astrobolome that is solely dedicated. It's like genetically actually programmed to help break down and either eliminate or reabsorb the right amount of estrogen that we need. It helps us break down and get rid of a more toxic form of estrogen that is the result of like the body's metabolic processes. And it helps us reabsorb enough to keep our bones and our heart and our brain healthy and our hormones in balance. So I just think it's so amazing to think about how elegant and how perfect our bodies are that we actually have a whole department literally dedicated to just doing this. And what are the things that keep that department healthy? Eating fiber, eating leafy greens, good quality fats. What are the things that damage that department? Exposure to these endocrine disruptors, not getting enough healthy fats, not getting enough leafy greens, not eating a rainbow. I mean, truly all the principles that the Saqqara diet is based on. And I'm not, a just so you guys listening know, I'm like, I'm not a paid person for Saqqara. Everything I do is <laughs> just volunteer or friends. But the principles of this plant-based diet are actually the key critical principles for gut health and for hormone health. Right. And we, we don't offer animal products as part of our program, but that's not because we're necessarily against animal proteins. I think it's just about what you're talking about, getting enough plants into your diet to support your body's systems. And Yeah, and that's the one thing most people aren't getting enough of. Nobody's yeah. nobody in America is protein deficient. I think it's, it's less really than true. <laughs> yeah, you know, we think of the CDC now with COVID, right? But um, the CDC actually does these major national studies every few years, and they keep coming up with one really consistent, phenomenal fact, which is in every state in the United States, 
most people are getting only 14 to 16% of the recommended daily number of fruits and vegetable servings. And that's based on CDC recommendations or FDA, which are the lowest (laughs) possible. Like that's basically survival level. In my book, I don't, it's not a vegan plan, but, but I do give a vegan plan, but I actually do take red meat out of the plan almost entirely. You know, for people who really feel like they need it or want it, I say, look, max once a week. Because when we look at food and hormone studies, consistently red meat shows up as a problem for polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, period pain, even fertility challenges. Eating more than one or so servings of red meat a week is actually inversely correlated. So the more you eat, the less your hormone balance is optimized and the more you're likely to struggle with one of those problems. And people will say to me, well, what about if it's like locally raised, grass fed, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, that's probably better, but there is something just inherently inflammatory about meat these days. And I think 150 years ago when animal were grazing on grass that had really high omega fats, that might've been different, but even grass-fed beef these days, they're not grazing on the same fats that cattle ancestors would have. And so I really do encourage if you're struggling with a hormone problem, taking red meat out of your diet. The one exception is if someone's anemic and there are lots of other ways to get good iron sources in your diet, but that's the one time I say, look, if you really feel like that's the only way you can do it, fine. Um, And it's not to say that, okay, never, if you love your red meat, that never eat it again. But if you're wanting to get your body to this place, heal your hormones, rebalance yourself, and you've been eating, consuming too much of something, you need to swing in the other direction and allow your body to recalibrate and get to a point where you're achieving the results you're looking for, where you're feeling better, where your symptoms have gone away, and then start to feel what does it feel like to bring some back in if that's what you really want exactly. to do. Yeah. Same with dairy. I mean, I'm not, I eat red meat in my diet. I occasionally have dairy in my diet, but if you're trying to heal something, taking out the some of the triggers that we know are known hormone imbalancers, if you will, can really make a difference. And, you know, when it comes to hormone balance, there have been some really good studies that show that vegetarians, for example, and it's not because they're not eating meat, it's because they're getting a lot more plant material in their diet, have healthier estrogen levels, have an easier time with hormones. One really good study looked at menstrual pain and found that just two cycles, two menstrual cycles of going vegetarian can completely eliminate menstrual pain. So, Again, I'm not saying one needs to be a vegetarian and I'm not, but it really can make a difference to add more plant material to your diet and just also those healthy fats as part of that, those plant-based fats. What about coffee and alcohol? Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of a, I follow the 95-5 rule in my life and in my practice that if you're eating well 95% of the time, you can pretty much do anything for 5% of the time. You know, think about that like one meal out of 20 or something like that. You can handle having that coffee or you can handle having that alcohol and do fine with it unless you're somebody who doesn't do fine with it. So if you drink coffee and you know it makes you jangled and irritated or you notice that you're having like breast tenderness or PMS and maybe take the coffee out for a few months, see how you feel. And as you were saying, pay attention to how you feel when you add it back in. So in the plan in the book, I actually do recommend taking coffee out for a few months just so you can start to pay attention. Is it affecting your sleep? Is it affecting, are you dependent on it? Some people are dependent on coffee with a little splash of milk just to go to the bathroom in the morning, right? So that's not having optimal like natural bowel movements. So if you're dependent on it, take it out and then add it back in. But otherwise, I don't think coffee is inherently harmful for your hormones and no data shows that it is. If you are trying to balance your hormones, alcohol is not usually our best friend. You know, it's interesting. It's the only food, if you will, now I'm doing the air quotes. It's the only food or thing that we consume as part of a diet that has actually been tied definitively to breast cancer. And it's because it so triggers estrogen in the body. It's also one of those things that I find, and especially as women get into their perimenopausal years, can really impact sleep. So any of my patients, anyone in my programs who is 
struggling with sleep, I'm like, just take the alcohol out. And I always jokingly say like, yes, I know it's like a Northern California organic Cabernet, but even still it's red wine is one of the worst culprits. So again, see how you feel. If you're in a therapeutic program, if you're trying to actually heal something, absolutely take it out. And then even on a day-to-day basis, you know, really keeping it to once a week max is probably a good idea. Why is red wine one of the worst culprits? Can we just dig into that? I know Danielle really loves her wine, but I haven't been drinking much alcohol, you know, going into my fertility and into pregnancy and breastfeeding. But when I do, I usually have a little bit of red wine. And now you've got me thinking about this. Well, it's not a harmful substance unless you're really triggered by it or if you're trying to balance your hormones. And it just seems to be way more stimulating for women around their emotions and their sleep. So just in my observation over many, many years, if a woman is, and again, especially perimenopausal, if she's struggling with sleep, I think one of the things we tend to go toward is that glass of red wine. And, you know, especially as women are getting into perimenopause, it's like, I'm just dealing with these hot flashes or I'm going through these changes in my life. And I'm just going to reward myself with that glass of red wine before bed. And now I'm wondering why am I not sleeping or why am I waking up in the middle of the night or why am I having worse hot flashes? That's when red wine can be really a culprit. So for women who do want to have a little bit of alcohol, just for relaxation or pleasure, I'll say, look, you know, if you can eliminate it all together for a couple of few months while you're trying to get a handle on what's going on, that's optimal. And then if you do have some alcohol, I find at least experientially from my own practice, which is a lot of women in my own work, a little bit of vodka, gluten-free vodka seems to be easier on the hormones. So just have like a splash of vodka in some sparkling water and a little cranberry juice or something like that does not seem to be as much of a hormone trigger. I don't know what the estrogen level comparison is of the different alcohol, so I can't speak to that. The other thing with red wine is that it's quite fermented and has a good bit of sugar in it too. So it may be that sugar alcohol combination for some women is more of a trigger than something like vodka. I can see everybody now as we go back into the world, uh, as we come out of our COVID days, everybody's going to be ordering vodka cranberry soda now after this conversation. (laughs) My favorite is vodka with a little squeeze of lime and some sparkling water. And if you're really going for it, like the littlest drizzle of maple syrup, I think women just tolerate it better. If you don't tolerate the sugar again, keep it out. But yeah, not that I'm encouraging everyone to go out and have cocktails. (laughs) What about tequila? (laughs) They need to know. Yeah. Tequila, vodka, and oh gosh, I'm blanking on the other. That's like tequila. Um, Mezcal? Mezcal. Yeah. Although mezcal is really strong. That's a strong, Um, but tequila and vodka are probably two of the cleaner, if you will, on our hormones and sleep, et cetera, for women. So we got to talk about estrogen dominance. What are some of the other ways our hormones can be off and some of the red flags that we should be on the lookout for? And are there signs before things are bad that we can be on the lookout for. Yeah. Another really common way that our hormones can show up is actually low estrogen. And we tend to see that in women who are very restrictive in their food because you have to have enough fat and enough energy intake. So enough, I know we don't, none of us count calories, but from a nutritional perspective and a weight perspective, we have to have enough caloric intake, energy intake, and enough fat to produce hormones. So if we're either restricting in our diet if we're struggling with an eating disorder, that means we're not getting enough nutrition in, or if we're really intense athletes. So you could be getting almost enough in your diet, but really burning up more with your exercise. And so you have very low body fat and you now have low estrogen as a result. And that will typically show up as skipping cycles, having like a long, long menstrual cycle. It can be, you know, 40 days, 50 days, 38 days, anything over really 32 or 34 days would be considered a long menstrual cycle. Very light periods, maybe not ovulating. That's called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that can be really problematic too, because it can also affect our bone density, our heart health. So that's one way it can show up. Um, Not ovulating will mean that we have low progesterone and there are lots of different triggers that can cause us to not ovulate. 
but that one that I was just mentioning, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which can not just be low body weight and excess exercise, but high levels of stress can cause that too. And there are other things, low testosterone, high testosterone. We see high testosterone with polycystic ovary syndrome. Then of course there are thyroid problems and cortisol problems that can happen with stress and adrenaline, adrenal issues. But to answer your question, so yes, there are ways that we can know things. And I, you know, I say that these are the whispers that our hormones give us before there's full on, you know, screaming with bigger symptoms. And yes, often we do have those lighter, subtler symptoms before bigger things happen. So irregular periods, periods that are too long or too short, meaning that they're longer than 34 days or shorter than 26 days. Periods that are heavy, meaning that you're blowing through more than six tampons or pads in a day, or your periods are lasting longer than seven days. Periods that are too light. And I know that people with heavy periods are thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I had that problem. But periods that are too light, meaning that you're hardly ever having to change a pad or a tampon, you do because you want to, but not because it's you know saturated enough to need to, or bleeding less than three days. So these are just some of the signs, but also it's normal to know that our bodies are going through changes. So it's normal to have a little pelvic heaviness or fullness premenstrually. It's normal to notice that your mood has shifted and you're not feeling like going to that party. You really just want to stay home and write in your journal or watch something on Netflix or take a bath. Those are all normal ways that our hormones tell us they're working and that, hey, I'm a woman and this is these are the natural changes I'm going through. But if anything is taking you out, you know, like you're doubled over in pain or you're having to take pain medication every month, or you don't want to go to the party because you just feel too crappy to go, or your moods are so extreme that you find yourself dysfunctional in your life. You know, you're always in a battle with your partner or someone at work or yourself at certain times of the month. You know, not wanting to have sex is one thing, but having a really low libido is another thing. Like you just never feel like you're getting those arousal symptoms. These are all the quiet little things that as women, we're kind of told are normal. It's normal to have period pain. It's normal to just have to take ibuprofen. Why wouldn't you want to? It's normal to have heavy periods. It's normal to have migraines. You're having them because you're a woman. So what would you expect? So we're taught to ignore all of these whispers. And then ultimately those whispers might be telling us something bigger is going on. That said, some women just start out their menstrual history, puberty, and like they're in hell already. So it could be that for some women, you're not missing any of these early signs. It's just like, boom, you start out with periods from hell. You start out with acne. You start out with all these symptoms because there were things that were happening all along when your mom was pregnant with you, or maybe you had a crazy amount of antibiotics when you were a kid or trauma or something that set your menstrual cycles and your hormones. I love the study of epigenetics and just this idea. I remember when Whitney and I were starting Sakara, we had this friend who was like, yeah, you know, you're given your genes and that's it. And we'd be like, no, there's this study called epigenetics. And he was like, no, that's bullshit. And I'm like, mm, okay. Now, you know, 10, 12 years later, I was probably like 13 years later, we know that yes, you have genes, but that they are not static and they are so interdependent on your environment and turned on and off depending on your inputs, many of which you can control. One of my my questions is, what are your thoughts? I see a lot of people talking about intermittent fasting and resetting your hormones. And what do you think about that, especially given your expertise in women's health? Yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to touch on this epigenetics for listeners because it's so easy to think that our destiny, like our genes are our destiny. And just because our mom had PCOS or endo or fertility problems, it doesn't mean that we're going to, but it does mean that that genetic predisposition is there. And so that is where we do have some agency is whether we flip that switch on or off. And we know that diet and microbiome, all of those things really do have an impact on that epigenetics. And that's so powerful. Intermittent fasting. So I think intermittent fasting, like so many more therapeutic diets, is a great strategy if you're struggling with your metabolism, you're struggling with inflammation, 
insulin resistance, um, difficult to lose weight that you just are trying things and you just can't budget, budge it, like move it, not budget like money. And (laughs) what I like to think of as intermittent fasting is time-based eating. So with intermittent fasting, because I think the word fasting can be a little intimidating and it sounds like we're restricting or taking away food, but actually with intermittent fasting, you're not necessarily eating any less in terms of your daily intake of, of energy, but you're actually eating within a window. And the idea is that within that window, it may be that you're eating between, let's say, 7am and 7pm. Or you might have a tighter window, which is where we do think of intermittent fasting as let's say 10 or 11am and 7pm. But studies have shown very dramatically that eating within that time-based window, it's actually called time-restricted eating, but I don't like that term because again, I don't like thinking of food and restriction. I don't think that's nourishing. But eating within this window has a really powerful ability to reset our cortisol levels, to reset inflammation, to reset our insulin levels. And those right there are key to avoiding or resetting from so many chronic illnesses, but also from hormone imbalances and how they show up as medical conditions. So there's a huge inflammatory component to endometriosis. There's a huge potential insulin resistant component and inflammation with PCOS. Even period pain has been associated with inflammation. So I think it can be a wonderful strategy. Where I tend to recommend it more is those kind of parameters I talked about earlier, difficult to lose weight, et cetera. And for women who are in perimenopause, As our estrogen shifts in perimenopause, it's really common because we're losing one kind of estrogen and shifting to another kind of estrogen. The kind we shift to doesn't quite have as much metabolic fire. I think that there are biological reasons for this, but it makes us often put on anywhere from five to 10 pounds in our late 40s and into our 50s. And it's not something most women want to do. The reason our bodies do it is because we produce estrogen in our fat cells once our ovaries start to go a little more dormant. And so our body's trying to make us have a little more fat cells. So one of the ways that we can kind of keep that weight gain to a minimum is by intermittent fasting. So that's a wonderful age range to do intermittent fasting in. I tend to not recommend it for women who have struggled with an eating disorder if it's going to be a potential trigger for them to skip meals. And I tend to not recommend it to women who are trying to get pregnant or who have low body fat and low estrogen, because I think eating those more, the three meals a day, when we're doing this time-restricted eating, as it's called, or this time-based eating, as I call it, we're tending to go to two meals a day and maybe one light snack. And intermittent fasting is almost always two meals a day. So um, it's not necessarily for everyone. And some studies have found that after six or eight weeks for some for many women, it can actually become a stressful restrictive pattern that may actually have like a backfire on it. So in that case, try it for a short time, you know, try it for a month and see how you feel. And then maybe stop doing it after six or eight weeks, go back to kind of a more balanced way that you would previously eat but then maybe do it once in a while. Like think about doing it a couple of times a year if you feel like you need that reset. Do our bodies need that extra layer of fat that you were talking about going into menopause and beyond? Is it safe to decrease our fat stores? Yeah, so it seems to me that there is definitely a biological mechanism happening there that is pretty hardwired into us. And what happens is, is so most of our lives, once we hit puberty, We are dominant in this form of estrogen called estradiol. When we're pregnant, we switch over to more of something called estriol. And when we switch into menopause, we go to something called estrone. So that's the predominant estrogen we're producing. And estrone, absolutely, we have slower metabolism. We have faster metabolism with estradiol. So pretty much every woman that goes into perimenopause or menopause, like once you really hit menopause, once your cycle stops, there seems to be this weight gain that happens. And it's not necessarily dramatic. It's more like five pounds, seven pounds, 10 pounds, but it can feel dramatic, especially if you've always had your body weight in one area and there's so much cultural stigma around gaining weight. 
But what happens is when we hit menopause, we're hitting menopause because our ovaries aren't producing estrogen anymore. They're just, they're not really producing much estradiol. So our body switches to actually producing our estrogen in our fat cells, our hips, our butt, our thighs, and a little bit around our waist. And so it's kind of phenomenal, right? When you think about it, that you hit this time in life, your ovaries aren't producing the estrogen anymore. You now can only make the estrogen in your fat cells for the most part. And we want to keep up some estrogen because if we don't have enough estrogen, then we have worse menopausal symptoms. We have higher risk of osteoporosis. We have higher risk of dementia. We have higher risk of heart disease, which is part of why so many doctors supplement hormone replacement therapy. They're trying to provide the estrogen when actually that increase in weight might naturally provide it. So Look, I'm 54, turning 55. I went into menopause a year ago. My weight, except for during pregnancy, has been like to the two pounds consistent my entire life. And then all of a sudden I gained like five pounds basically in the two or three months of my period stopping. And I was like, oh, this is not <laughs> this is not what I actually ideally want to have happen as much as I am completely body positive. There's still that part of me that's like, uh... But what's really interesting is it's not been like, if you looked at me, you wouldn't say, oh, Aviva's gained a bunch of weight. It's almost like this kind of even distribution where I just have a little more fat. Like my clothing size hasn't changed, nothing. It's just like, I'm a little bit, I don't know how else to explain it, thicker than I was. And what's really interesting too, is that I'm just rolling with it. I mean, there's, I'm not going to fight my body. And Whitney, you and I talked about that when we talked about your postpartum experience, like Yes, you're not going to fight your body to try to bounce back. You're going to let your body be how it needs to be to produce breast milk for your baby, right? So I think allowing those changes to happen is really powerful and really important, even if it is challenging to our self-concept, just like it is postpartum, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's challenging in a bounce back world. It's challenging in a world that's so dominated by thin as the ideal to tune in and let our bodies do what they're trying to do. Well, I think you've never looked better. Oh, thank you. Maybe it's because you're really just kind of standing in your power right now and are spreading your message and your mission and your light with so many people, but you really look amazing. And I love this idea of shifting the mindset as much as we can to appreciate our bodies for what they do, not just for how they look. And I think understanding why they do something in a certain way can help us to appreciate that, that this weight gain isn't just like, oh, I'm getting older. And so things are slowing down and I got to stay young and keep it going and be thin. No, it's, oh, this is necessary for my body to stay healthy into the years to come. Uh, Can I appreciate that and say, thank you, body, for being so smart, for being so intelligent to give me what I need. Totally. And it's it's really interesting too, because, you know, that extra layer of healthful fat also means like, we know that like, if you're very, very underweight, for example, you have more wrinkling, right? Like your skin tone isn't as healthful. So who we are and how we are at whatever our natural weight is, is so powerful to embrace, but rolling with it is also really powerful and interesting. And it kind of comes back to Danielle, what you were asking me, like, what is a hormone and it being a chemical messenger? And to me, what is that message, right? To me, the whole kind of concept of hormone intelligence is really two things. It's one, that we have this innate wisdom, much like you guys talk about body intelligence. It's that same thing. It's that innate wisdom, but then it's also having the intelligence to listen to it and the knowledge, the literacy to interpret and understand what the messages are, are telling us and then taking the power, that empowerment to do what we can with that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And let's end with this question and then we'll go to light work. What is it that you wish that every woman out there knew about hormones, her hormones or hormone health? I wish every woman knew that her hormones were her allies. We so often blame our hormones. We're like, I'm hormonal or I'm acting this way because I'm hormonal or 
I ate that because I'm hormonal or I did that because I'm hormonal or people say it to us, right? They'll say like, oh, are you on your period or are you hormonal? And instead of blaming our hormones or seeing our hormones as something negative, we actually know that they're trying to give us a message through our preferences, through our behavior, through how we're feeling in our body. And that that is a powerful tool that we can use to live a more empowered life with. Love it. Well, you know, we always end on light work. So some kind of homework that helps everyone listening shine their brightest light. Yeah. Do you have some sort of light work that you could share that something to get us to start taking care of our hormones or what's one little tip or challenge that we could do or to shift our mindset? Yeah. You know, for me, I actually, this is not the simplest thing, but on some levels it is actually very simple. I had the fortune and great blessing when I was a teenager to have a mentor who taught me to start paying attention and actually tracking my menstrual cycle. So actually on my desk here, I can show this to you guys since we can see each other, but this little collection, this pile here that I'm showing you are my menstrual cycle calendars going back all the way to 1985. And I stopped around 2000 just because, I mean, it's so inherent in myself that I stopped writing it down. But if you can get a moon calendar or a menstrual cycle chart and start not what just is day one of my period or not when I'm ovulating, but start to write down, even if you take like 30 seconds before you go to bed every night or one minute when you wake up in the morning and just start to pay attention to like, what is your emotional state? What kind of things are you thinking about? What clothing are you drawn to? What foods are you wanting? What exercise are you liking right now? And then don't have any intention, but just do it almost like an art project or stunt journalism or something. You're like doing a lived experience chart of your life and do that even for three months. If you love it, you can keep doing it. You can also use trackers. I mean, there are cycle trackers that you can use now to do that. Even if you are in perimenopause or you already stopped cycling, your hormones are still going through cyclic changes, even for years after you stop menstruating. So start to pay attention every day to what's going on for you, because we can start to notice these patterns that we can then actually, over time, start to use more intentionally, but also be more gentle with ourselves. So it's really cool. You can start to pay attention to your biology, how it affects your mood, your spirituality, your exercise, your food. So yeah, I would say the light work is dropping in, tuning in, and then being intentional about creating some form of journal of it. I love that because we've talked about body intelligence a few times. And I want to say, I I don't believe it's something that's given inherently. I think it's something that's cultivated. And so this is a beautiful way to start to get to know yourself and, and prioritize it. It's really fun and it's fascinating. You know, you can start to notice, wow, every time I'm mid cycle, I am really wanting to put on that sexy dress. But every time I'm like three days before my period, I'm all about the sweats, you know, or mid cycle, I'm really loving going out for a run or doing soul cycle. But right before my period, I just want to do restorative yoga. And then you're not beating yourself up because you're recognizing, oh yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing the other thing mid cycle. And this is actually part of my flow. This is how I naturally roll. Mm -hmm. I love that. Again, there's just so much here to dig into and learn and discover research and me search. So looking forward to that, but this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and information with the world. Thank you for having me, beautiful sisters. I love you both so much. Ditto, ditto. We love you. We wanted to share a Sakara story with you today. I love how this story is connected to our overall conversation and understanding what is within our control. What can we do to make sure that we are doing everything we can to feel good and make sure our body is getting the right inputs? So here is Whitney from New York. I want to share my feedback with your program. I'm 31 years old, and before I started Sakara, I had disordered eating for years. 
for the most part, I have always eaten healthy food, but I didn't have a healthy relationship with food or my body. I came to a breaking point this past year when my relationship with food and my body had become quite toxic and I felt desperate to try something new. I was ready for a transformation. I started your program in October and I've been on it since, and I just completed the level two detox. It took me time to notice results and changes in my body, and the changes didn't come without regular exercise. However, I cannot express enough gratitude for this program because it has entirely changed how I approach food and care for my body. It's certainly a journey that continues, but it is because of this program and the fact that I committed to it wholly that I have been able to start this journey. Thank you so much, Whitney, for joining us on this journey. Our mission is to help people sit in the driver's seat of their own health and give all of you and myself and Whitney included the tools to transform our health and own our health and be empowered. So thank you for sharing your story and thank you for joining us on this Sakara journey. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Bye.